0: Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, partner at the Calfee Law Firm, and on today's show... We take an in-depth look at the SEC's new custody rule proposal and the impact of these new requirements on investment advisors, broker-dealers, and custodians. In our headline section, we examine the new cybersecurity rule proposal, also known as Rule 10, and the new proposed amendments to Reg SP. And finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of History Has Your Back, where in honor of Women's History Month, we look at a legendary Greek physician who helps show us how women have been breaking down barriers across across the centuries. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, on March 15th, the SEC proposed a new rule, Rule 10, that would require market entities to implement procedures designed to address cybersecurity risk and a related form, Form SCIR, for disclosing information about cyber incidents and risks. The new requirements would apply to broker-dealers, the MSRB and FINRA, clearing agencies, national securities exchanges, security-based swap data repositories, swap dealers, and transfer agencies agents. Under Proposed Rule 10, market entities would be required to do four primary things. Create and maintain written policies and procedures to address cybersecurity risks. Two, annually review these policies. Three, submit an annual review to the SEC. And four, immediately inform the SEC of any significant cybersecurity incidents once the market entity concluded that a cybersecurity incident had occurred. The SEC said that the new regulation would require a firm to establish and maintain policies that included regular written assessments of cybersecurity risks, internal controls designed to reduce user-related risks and prevent unauthorized access, protections against unauthorized access of internal information systems, including, related to the recent outsourcing rule proposal, overseeing outside service providers, measures to detect and mitigate cybersecurity. Security threats to and vulnerabilities of its internal information systems and written documentation of cybersecurity incidents and steps taken to recover information that was taken during the incident. The form SCIR consisted primarily of two parts. Part one, for a firm to report steps taken by the market entity to address and resolve the incident and part two, requiring an, an annual summary of the firm's cybersecurity risks and any significant related incidents. The SEC said that firms would also have to post on their website a summary of information filed in part two of the proposed form SICR. So, what did the commissioners say about this new cybersecurity rule proposal? Chair Gensler emphasized that this was the, uh, uh, the that the proposal was really the first rulemaking to explicitly address the cybersecurity practices of entities covered under the proposal. Commissioner Mark Ueda dissented, likening the proposal to an SEC proposal in 2022 to implement cybersecurity risk management and reporting requirements. He questioned why the current proposal failed to react to comments to the February 2022 proposal. And further, he noted that the overlap in other proposals simultaneously being considered by the SEC, which would amend Reg SP and Regulation SCI, saying that the SEC's, quote, spaghetti on the wall approach to submitting proposals with potentially inconsistent regimes could lead to confusion and conflict. Similarly, Commissioner Peirce also criticized the rule proposal, calling it a tool to enhance year-end enforcement statistics rather than a serious proposal to make the securities market more secure. In addition to the cybersecurity rule proposal, the SEC also recently proposed amendments to reg sp also on march 15th the sec said that these amendments to regulations on consumer financial privacy and information safeguards also known as reg sp the proposed changes would among other things require firms to implement written incident response plans to provide timely notification to affected individuals following data breaches and three extend the protections of reg sp safeguards and disposal rules to cover information that Firm receipts from another financial institution relating to that institution's customers. As a part of these proposed amendments to the incident response program in requiring that several elements be included in the financial institution's uh, IRP, these requirements would include an assessment of the nature and scope of any incident involving unauthorized access to or use of customer information, including identifying the types of customer information and customer information systems accessed, procedures to contain and control the incident, procedures to notify affected individuals whose sensitive uh, sensitive customer information was or is reasonably likely to have been accessed or used without authorization, and finally, procedures to address the security uh, security risks posed by service providers with access to customer information and customer information systems, including receipt of contractual guarantees to, one, ensure service providers are taking appropriate measures to protect customer information against unauthorized access or use. And two, require the service provider to notify the financial institution as soon as possible, but no later than 48 hours, two days after becoming aware of a breach. With regard to this notice, the financial institutions would be required to notify affected customers of instances where their sensitive information was improperly accessed or used. The financial institution would be required to provide, quote, clear, and conspicuous notice to the affected customers that is designed to assist the customer in addressing and potentially mitigating harm arising from the incident. The institution would also be required to provide such notice as soon as practicable and in any event within 30 days of becoming aware that unauthorized access to or use of customer information had occurred or is reasonably likely to occur. The proposal primarily was aimed to set a quote, federal minimum standard standard for data breach notification to customers of covered financial institutions so what did the commissioners say about this proposal to reg sp uh, again, Chair Genzo supported the proposal for closing the gap between Reg SP as it currently stands and the proposal, which would notify customers of breaches of their, informi- of their information. Commissioner Crenshaw stated that she thought the proposal would add protections under Reg SP in, quote, meaningful ways, saying that it is, uh, uh, it is the SEC's, quote, imperative to impose rigorous requirements on SEC registrants and ensure that customer information is adequate adequately secured, Uh, Commissioner Mark Ueda said that he supported the solicitation of public comment on the proposal, but remained concerned about the potential for overlap with the other agency proposals. Commissioner Peirce agreed with the aim of the proposal to notify customers if their personal information had been compromised, but made clear that her support was far from unreserved. In particular, she highlighted several concerns with the proposal, which included failing to provide a workable strategy. uh, Firms to feel the need to err on the side of caution and forego the provision allowing firms to not notify customers of unauthorized access to their personal information if it does not pose a threat to them, which she cautioned could lead. Uh, which could result in too much of a good thing, <laughs> burdening firms with compliance costs to renegotiate their contracts with a universe of service providers due to the broad definition, the broad definition service providers covers, and proposing a one-year compliance period, which Ms. Peirce said she cannot understand how that is reasonable given all of the work that firms would need to do. In addition to these two rule proposals, the SEC also expanded the application of Reg SCI related to regulation systems compliance and integrity that would expand the scope of the regulation to cover, among other entities, large broker-dealers as defined by measures of size. What is the key takeaway with all of these proposals? As Michael Kleiman on the Fried Frank regulatory intelligence blog indicates, Portions of the proposal appear to reflect and respond to comments the SEC has received on its pending cybersecurity and public company disclosure proposals. Interestingly, the SEC did recently reopen these for comment. For example, while both of these proposals recognized but did not affirmatively, affirmatively address the potential burden of having to comply with multiple, sometimes inconsistent regulations on covered institutions, the Reg SP proposal contains an in-depth analysis on how covered institutions can implement and revise their policies and procedures to reduce some of the burden on those institutions. Given the sheer number of SEC proposals now pending out there, including the SEI, Reg SP, and cybersecurity proposals, financial institutions would do well to begin really mapping out what are their existing safeguards and cybersecurity policies and procedures to assess potential gaps in synergies found in the new proposals. Special care would be uh, well taken uh, and uh, to be provided to the precise notification of obligations to consumers, regulators, and the public at large that those regulated entities might be required to do so under the various proposals and under some of the existing state laws that apply to their own internal policies and procedures. As we move into the interview section of today's show, I am incredibly pleased to welcome in two fantastic guests to talk to us about an incredibly important topic in the investment management space today and seemingly a rule proposal that continues to make headlines even a month after its initial release. On February 15th of 2023, the Securities and Exchange Commission proposed rule changes to enhance protections of customer assets Managed by registered investment advisors. If adopted, these changes would amend and redesignate Rule 20642, also known as the custody rule, under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940, and amend certain related record-keeping and reporting obligations. The rule proposal officially hit the federal register on March 9th, 2023, meaning that the comment period for this for this controversial rule is going to be ending on May 8th of 2023. To help guide us through this crazy important topic in the investment management space, uh, we have two experts in the field, Jenna Garver and Isahana. Jenna is a partner in the investment management practice at Troutman Pepper. She provides targeted practical advice to investment advisors and their proprietary private investment funds. She routinely advises clients on SEC and state investment advisor, broker-dealer, and private fund regulation, their advisors act compliance programs, annual reviews, ongoing compliance matters, and regulatory examinations and investigations. She also has extensive experience representing financial institutions of all shapes and sizes in a variety of transactional and regulatory matters. Jenna, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: In addition to Jenna, we have the wonderful and talented Isa Hanna. Isa is a partner in Evershed Sutherland's Investment Services Practice Group. Isa assists broker dealers, investment advisors, investment funds, insurance companies, and insurance distributors in navigating the complex regulatory requirements applicable to their specific business lines. Both Isa and Jenna are uh, board members of the National Society of Compliance Professionals. Isa, we are incredibly pleased to have your robust depth and experience on today's show to discuss such an important topic thank
2: you so much for taking the time and welcome to the show happy to be here thanks for having me
0: so as we dive into the topic proper here on the new custody rule proposal I think it's important for all of our listeners um, who probably have an idea I would imagine about what the custody rule says the the current custody rule what it says and has probably seen some of the headlines about this new rule proposal that came out last month, but may not know all the kind of uh, uh, ins and outs of the scope of the rule and what it says. So before we get to that, I think it'd be important for us to really talk about the background of the custody rule that's currently in place, and maybe even do a little bit of a historical look back at some of the recent developments over the past few years and how this area has evolved. So maybe Issa, if I could kick it over to you, just to get us started. Maybe talk a little bit about the the custody rule, some of the background, and uh, do a little bit of, of a historical look back for us.
2: Sure. Happy to do it. So, the uh, custody rule has had a number of iterations. Uh, the last time that it was amended was back in the 2009-2010 time period in the wake of the Bernie Madoff and Alan Sanford scandals. Uh, the major improvement, I guess, to the rule that was made at that time was to address really the issue of related person custody. You know that was a really a direct response to what happened. You know in, in, uh, to those. Un, you know unfortunately to those those clients of um of Bernie Madoff and Alan Sanford and anybody else who who wasn't getting the the protection the protection of their assets that they uh, they should have. So since then, you know a lot has has happened. You know certain interpretive issues have. Arisen under the rule as a result of changes in doing business, emergence of certain new asset classes, so on and so forth. Uh, you know, I would say you know there's a there's a few categories of of changes that have kind of emerged over the you know the last decade or so that have led us to this point. You know, one major area relates to. Crypto assets. Uh, it's become, you know, much more common for, you know, investment advisors to offer advice in connection with crypto assets. And, you know, there's been some back and forth uh, between uh, the SEC staff and the advisory industry regarding the circumstances under which you know an advisor is deemed to have custody of crypto assets, uh, how they should be custodied, so on and so forth. Uh, there was you know uh, you know an exchange uh, between the industry and the SEC by way of some letters over over the you know uh, course of um uh, of you know the, the last you know, decade or so uh, but no real formal guidance nothing in the rule to specifically address uh, h- how advisors should deal with that scenario another thing that's kind of arisen in the in the last decade since the last time uh, you know the custody rule was uh, was touched uh, has was the issue of inadvertent custody you know there's there's been some you, you know FAQ guidance that's been issued in connection with that topic and for those who aren't familiar with the inadvertent custody is a situation where an advisor you know it has custody of its clients' assets as a result of a provision and a client agreement but they don't know about it right because uh, you know that that client has that agreement directly with the custodian that they deal with you know and that provision says that you know the, the 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 advisor has the ability to access you know the client's funds or securities you know in that situation the the advisor is deemed to have so-called inadvertent custody so that's one thing that's kind of arisen over the last decade plus you know, same uh, same kind of basic fact pattern with respect to standing letters of authorization. Uh, there's been um, some informal guidance that's been issued by the staff uh, over the years to kind of deal with um, with that issue and how that's to be dealt with under the custody rule. But again, if unless you're kind of uh, well acquainted with the rule and all the associated guidance, you're not necessarily going to know where to find that, right? So you've had all these myriad developments happening since, you know, since 2010, you know, with respect to the custody rule, anybody who um, hasn't been paying close attention would find it difficult to, to, to figure out what the relevant guidance is. So I think one of the major things that they're doing here as part of this, this rule or this rule proposal is to bring the guidance that's that's been um, scattered all over the place within the text of the rule, so that everybody knows where to find everything. It's all accessible. That's a you know I think a something something that everybody should welcome, right? You know, regulators should uh, should make you know the rules and make the guidance as accessible to everyone as possible. But it's that's not really where I think uh, this is. Necessarily stopping, right? The SEC has identified, in its view, uh, certain shortcomings with the rule, which we're going to, you know, be deep diving into later in this discussion. Uh, And you know, they're they're making certain uh, what they think are improvements to to the rule, or they're proposing to do that. And um, you know, and it's it's hard to kind of ignore the backdrop for what's happening here in terms of uh, the FTX scandal that happened, you know, at at the tail end of 2022. And that you know, in that context for this, so I think a lot of what's what's going on here—not definitely not exclusively—but a lot of what's going on here is a response to you know the 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 context here of um, you know certain folks losing um, you know significant assets in connection with that scandal. So you know, crypto is is an important component to this, but it's definitely not the only component, right? There's a lot that's going on under this rule that has absolutely nothing to do with crypto or is neutral with respect to all asset classes that I think every advisor should be paying attention to uh so with that I'll I'll kind of see the the mic back to you Patrick to kind of uh uh get the conversation going and, and dive into what's uh, what's really required under this uh, or what's what could be required under this new proposal
0: well, no, I mean, look, you're uh, that was fantastic uh, background, and I think really helpful context for a lot of folks who you know are probably again, probably familiar, I think generally with the custody rule and at least some of its application in the day-to-day operations of registered investment advisors. Um, and other financial market participants, but I, I think that's that's helpful for them. I, I actually think, too, I like part of what you're mentioning, that there are these kind of broader concerns that certainly we've seen um, because of the activity from last fall and uh, FTX. But I, I think just generally, too, you've seen over the past few years, the SEC under Chair Gensler take a, a slightly more aggressive stance when it comes to trying to safeguard and protect customer assets in very different ways. You know, one of the things that Issa said, Jenna, that I think is at least worth mentioning and would be interested in in hearing your thoughts on, as well is this idea that, you know, there was a lot of kind of, I'll call it ad hoc guidance that had been provided over the course of time as part of an evolution of a rule and rulemaking and how firms are approaching it. This seems, in my mind, at least at first blush, a little bit familiar with some of the other stuff we've seen from the SEC, like in the the marketing rule area, where you had over the course of time, you know, lots of different IM guidance updates and uh, risk alerts, and obviously no action letters and stuff. And so it seems like the custody area, in particular, safeguarding customer assets, was probably an area that that. Um, at least, they're, you know, from an opportunistic standpoint, it makes sense that they might be proposing a new rule here. But I wanted just to get your thoughts generally about that comment, and 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 if you think that this is a good area for the SEC to be taking a look at from a rulemaking perspective.
1: Sure. So my well, to answer that question, yes it's definitely ripe for an amendment. I think there are a lot of similarities with the marketing rule in terms of, you know, process and approach. Both of the rules are thank god older than me and not by much. <laughs> I believe it was Melissa Robart's heart from the staff that had, I guess she's been working on uh, amendments for about 12 years or so. I know there was a, a a shout out to her, if you will, at the commission's um, open meeting when they proposed the rule. So that was a good indication of how long they've really been trying to uh, come up with a good solution. Obviously, there are clear policy reasons why we need these rules, but coming up with the you no know, right approach, the right set. I think that's a similar situation with the marketing rule where, you know, they wanted something that was evergreen to modernize it, it, could withstand the test of time. I think we're in the same camp with the custody rule. It's been obviously amended a few times over the years, more so than we saw with the old advertising rule, but I think that the technology is now really outpacing the rulemaking in this particular area, not just because of crypto, it's everyone's favorite topic. So we have to drop that word in every 30 seconds or so in this podcast, but Crypto is not the only technology forward aspect uh, of this role. We saw it years ago with electronic notes um, and in dealing with all new types of strategies and concepts. So uh, it really is ripe. I also think similar to the old advertising rule, you have this patchwork of guidance all over the place and not being able to find things. But you know, similar to the marketing rule, guidance is in so many you know different forms and in different locations. It's hard to, as a newcomer into this space, get a good understanding of what the actual rule is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same thing happened with the advertising rule. So uh, even if you're not a fan of the new marketing rule, I do think that there's some comfort uh, in hearing this staff say everything you need to know is in the four corners of the rule in the adopting release. It is somewhat refreshing. That being said, we're only a few months out from the compliance state of the marketing rule. We already have a few FAQs on the books and clearly the industry is dying for more guidance, which we also have um, a risk alert. So, we may have another risk alert coming. And so you can see how it's really hard for the SEC to break away from this, you know, stream of guidance uh, situation. So who's to say that this approach is ultimately going to work for either the new marketing rule or this proposed custody rule. But they're certainly trying So I I do see similarities, but the good news about doing things through rulemaking is it gives the industry and participants an opportunity to participate in the rulemaking process, which is not the case with non-rule guidance. You don't get to pipe in and be part of deciding what it should be. You're just told what it should be. And you also aren't sure if that is the position of the commission as opposed to the staff. And the guidance for the custody rule can at times be problematic, especially on an exam when you're talking about certain particulars that... Guidance that is not rule-based guidance.
2: Sure.
1: So yeah. I'm I'm happy to get some resolution on on those matters through a rule process.
0: Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And you know, you you mentioned a couple of things there. It's probably a good opportunity for us to dive into some of the specifics of the rulemaking. And certainly, you'll you'll hear all three of us reiterate throughout. The course of this particular show, that you know, for those that are interested, highly recommend you offering and sharing your thoughts as part of a comment letter uh, and and participating in that process to help the SEC and the staff and other uh, uh, industry participants make sure that we get to the best landing spot possible when it comes to these types of rule proposals. But let's let, let's dig into some of the specifics. So. As it relates uh, to maybe, maybe Jenna, we'll kind of stay with you here. As it relates specifically to uh, the, some of the scope of assets that are covered underneath the rule, what are uh, you know? D- w- t- tell me about some of the specific provisions there, and and even maybe about some about the s- some of the provisions around kind of privately offered securities.
1: Sure. So under the current custody rule. We're really focusing on custody of funds that I equate to being money, like cash, like, you know, like a money gun situation um, and securities. And of course, what are securities? seems pretty obvious what they are until you actually dig in and then it can be, you know, a little vague, of course, and we don't need to go through the whole Howie test today.
0: Howie test today. But
1: I can tell you that, you know, a few years ago, none of us would have, you know, hemmed and hawed too much about the concept of securities under the custody rule, maybe in the context of a credit strategy or a deal with loans, maybe we've had some interpretive, you know, issues over the years. But obviously, um, the uh, the crypto um, era has brought in a whole new round of questions as to what securities are. But the bottom line is, and again, this is not because of crypto, and it's not limited to crypto. But the rule would broaden the scope of assets that are covered significantly to include all assets. And so that could pick up real estate, meaning like, as we call the dirt being like a deed, or if it's a digital asset, whether that is a Crypto that is a security or not, as well as you know traditional securities, whether they be um, publicly traded and held uh, DTC or privately offered uh, securities that might be uncertificated.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's let's dig in there. Maybe you know, ISA, I'll I'll turn to you. This uh, idea around kind of real estate assets uh, being a focus. Uh, Obviously, you know Jenna mentioned that it certainly had a specific call out in the rule proposal, but uh, that's not the only time that the SEC has mentioned that recently, right? And and again, one of the other things I'd be interested to hear, maybe Issa, if you want to kick us off, or Jenna, feel free to chime in. Is you know the the ideas in the rule proposal that. Talk about kind of um, accommodation reporting, I guess, is what
2: I would I would call uh, call it. And you know what what the SEC stance appears to be there. Yeah, I can I can address those two questions. So, you know, when it comes to you know real estate assets and other kind of similar hard assets, you know that that are definitely not securities. You know, I think. This is a the fact that they're kind of addressing this under the rule is a consequence of their expansion of the rule to really cover any client asset, right? Not just funds or securities, but any asset regardless of whether it's money or a security or whatever, right? So they clearly there are certain assets that a bank or other qualified custodians simply will not hold for you. I would say, generally speaking, um, a, a bank is is not going to be able to uh, uh, to hold a piece of real property or an uh, or, or like physical commodities like oil and gas, right? So uh, you know, if um, if you're providing advice in connection with those types of assets, the SEC is saying under this proposal we will give you an out from the obligation to maintain those assets. With uh, with a qualified custodian, assuming you have custody of them, right? But there's a series of conditions that would apply when you're trying to take advantage of that exception from the qualified custodian requirement. You know, I'm not going to run through them all, but you know, there's a, there's a couple in there that are that are tough, and they're going to create real you know operational complexity and you know compliance pain uh, for investment advisors. One of the requirements is that. Uh, If you ever want to engage in some sort of transaction with respect to those assets, some sort of disposition or maybe a financing or something like that, where ownership related to that asset is changing in some way, you have to give a heads up to your accountant within one business day of the fact of that transaction. You know, there are advisors who are engaging in, you know, Transaction activity with respect to assets on, you know, a constant basis, right? And you know the fact that you have to kind of give your, um, you, you know, your accountant a heads up regarding a, uh, you know, that type of transaction every single time you engage in one, you know, seems like, uh, you know, a, a tough ask, and it, it's something that you know I, I've heard already is. Um, you know, something that the industry is not really uh, too keen on. You know, but but in general, that's kind of the the approach here. So, you know, the SEC is saying we'll give you an out from you know the, the obligation to uh, to maintain these types of assets, these hard assets, with a uh, a qualified custodian. Thank you very much. You know, that's that's great. Uh, but it, it, it you know they give with one hand, but they take away with the other, right? Uh, they're they're imposing more compliance responsibilities if uh, if if you do decide to take advantage of that uh, that relief and and you know that's that's an exception that's that's available with respect to. You know, certain other types of assets as well, such as privately offered securities, the certi- you know the non-certificated securities, so on and so forth. So, you know, that's something that you can continue to take advantage of. That's, that was something that was already existing under the rule, but I think the SEC is intending for that exception with respect to, especially privately offered securities, to be used uh, significantly less often. They you know they state in the, the the proposing release that their original intent was that was for that to only be used in the rarest of circumstances. So, you know, that's you know, uh, uh, an issue that'll have to also play out during the comment letter process as to whether the SEC is uh, is right about its its um, you know its its views on you know the the scope of that exception and, and, and um, whether what what they're proposing here is is um, is going to be workable. And I know Patrick, you also asked a question about accommodation reporting. You know, the SEC makes a lot in the in the proposing release about this issue of 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 account account statement integrity. They you know they um, are very concerned about you know the integrity of account statements account statements um, you know uh, uh, you know representing uh, to clients a a full you know complete you know picture of what's actually held. In uh, you know their their account with a particular custodian, but nothing more than that, right? So you know to the extent that you are uh, you know uh, uh, as an advisor, asking uh, your uh, your custodian to display the value of you know certain assets that are held away from you know the you know your client's custodian, so called accommodation reporting. The SEC wants to wants you to stop doing that essentially, um, unless. The client explicitly requests it, so you know that's that's going to be you know a, a major change under the rule where, you know, if you're you know engaging in this this practice of uh, you know accommodation reporting or asking your custodians to um you know to 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 do that for your clients, you're going to have to get explicit permission uh, from your clients to to continue doing that, or you know abandon the process altogether if you're not able to get that explicit permission. Yeah.
0: Jenna, any thoughts? Because again, really great information, Issa. Any thoughts on e- either of those items that, that he, he discussed?
1: Yes. Yeah, Issa, that was a great summary. I think a big difference on the privately operated securities exception is the burden that will fall on the advisor to determine that the exceptions available. And you have to have a, or if the a rule is adopted as proposed, you have to reasonably determine and document in writing that the ownership cannot be recorded and maintained in a manner in which a qualified custodian can maintain possession or control. And for that reason, it seems like it's not clear when Assets do need to be maintained by a qualified custodian. If they if it were very clear all the ways in which a custodian could maintain possession and control, perhaps that determination would be easy. But since it's up to the advisor to determine that no option is available when it may not be clear the universe you know, in which they are you know, the universe of options. I think that is a very challenging determination to make. And I suspect we'll get a lot of comments on that. I know uh, our NSCP comment letter working group is... Focusing on this issue just to get clarity around when it, it's okay to not use a qualified custodian. So I uh, especially since this is supposed to be, you know, a modernized and evergreen like rule similar to the marketing rule, like it's really going to be important to stay on top of all the possibilities.
0: Yeah, no, that's <laughs> I am a thousand percent certain that many of our listeners will be keeping a close, close eye on that. I think another part of the rule that at least I've heard anecdotally uh, some of the most visceral feedback on, Isa mentioned it, I think, a little bit earlier. And I would love to get both of your thoughts on kind of generally speaking. But you know, this idea now that any asset over which you have discretionary authority is now going to be considered subject to the custody rule and the implications of that. And, and maybe even some of the, the challenges therein, you know, maybe Issa, we can, if you wouldn't mind kicking us off, you know, would love to hear some of your thoughts there about what kind of feedback you've already gotten as it relates to that specific part of the rule proposal, uh, you know, what, you know, impact that could have, and maybe what, what are some of the challenges there? Sure.
2: So yeah, I mean, you you kind of teed this up already, Patrick, but I'll um, just give a little bit of an overview here. You know, under the rule, they de- they define you know custody to include certain types of authority, right? That they uh, view as you know the, the nature of authority that allows you to access your you know your client's um, you know funds or securities, and you know potentially have the ability to move them out of the account for uh, for illicit purposes, right? So you know what they're what they're proposing here is to make a change to that definition of custody uh, to expand it a bit uh, and to cover any uh, discretionary authority uh, that you know gives you uh, you know the right to trade client assets. So you know that's that's a big change, right? I mean that would mean that almost every investment advisor would be deemed to have custody, right? and because almost every advisor out there has discretionary authority over at least some of their clients assets you know there's there's going to be an out you know with respect to the surprise examination requirement if your discretionary authority arises only in connection with you know assets that settle on a delivery versus payment basis so you know that's um that's a similar type of relief that's that's granted to investment advisors Who have custody as a result of their ability to deduct their fees out of client accounts, but nonetheless, you know, you're you're going to have to come into compliance. Like even if you have, you know, custody over DVP assets. You're still going to have to comply with other requirements under the rule, right? You're going to have to maintain it with a qualified custodian. You're going to have to, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here because we're going to talk about a lot of these topics later on in this this discussion. You're going to have to get, you know, a written agreement uh, in place with the, you know, any qualified custodian that maintains those assets, containing certain specified terms under the rule. You're going to have to get written assurances from those custodians. So having custody, you know, based on your discretionary authority, even if it's um. You know, in the nature of DVP type of uh, you know discretion, that's still a big deal under this proposal, right? It, it, there are real consequences to that, and you know I think what what the SEC is proposing here is to significantly increase uh, you know compliance burden and ongoing obligations for investment advisors as a as a community generally, not just those advisors who have truly the ability to move assets out of their clients' accounts and you know we'll see where that goes i expect uh, a lot of comments on on this issue you know i think uh, an obvious point that a lot of folks i i'm sure are going to raise is that there are multiple types of you know discretionary arrangements right there's such a thing as limited discretion where you know you can trade you know maybe a client's assets you know within their account uh, among certain you know securities but you can't move them out of the account right and you know, we'll see. You know how how the SEC kind of you know responds to that type of uh you know commentary. But I think at the end of the day, what the SEC should be you know laser focused on is ensuring that you know clients' assets are not lost or misappropriated in any way. I think we can all agree that that's a laudable goal, right? Well, you don't want anybody losing you know their life savings. Uh, but at the same time, you know we want to make sure that we're dealing with this problem in a smart way, in a you know, in a in a properly tailored way and, and rather than kind of dealing with uh with the issue in a heavy-handed way.
0: Yeah, Jenna, any any thoughts on kind of the discretionary authority piece and then even kind of broadening you, you mentioned private funds earlier and, and stuff like that. Be interested to hear or uh, from you, in addition to discretionary authority, maybe uh, you know, other areas of significant impact that you see with with the new rule.
1: Sure. So, you know, I think I mean, Issa really covered the discretionary authority piece well. I don't think we've mentioned this yet. The assets subject to the rule have expanded, which we have said to include all types of assets. Often, even under the current rule, I think there can be confusion about which assets we're talking about because a An advisory client will give its investment advisor discretion over a portion of their assets if other assets are for example in the possession or control of a related person of the advisor even though the advisor isn't managing those non-advised assets they still may be deemed to have custody of them and so when you expand the scope of the rule beyond funds and securities to other types of assets hard assets i mean so many different examples you could have a lot of unintended consequences of this rule creep. So a great example is where you have an investment advisor affiliate of a bank that has a trust department, and the the bank may serve as trustee for various assets um or otherwise uh, be deemed to have custody of client assets art or um you know wine collections like it goes on and on and on and it's not uh, uncommon especially in like a you know wealthy family context for that to be the case so it will have a ripple effect through the rule and so not you know just focusing on the terms of the advisory relationship or the you know the breadth of the application of the rule but how those two elements trickle through especially where you have custody because a related person has custody. Mm -hmm. Mm. And I just think there is this misconception that the assets we're talking about have to be the assets that they're providing investment advice on, and that it's much broader than that, even under the current rule. So I think that's something to look out for as the comments come in. They're not that many, but I suspect given the expansion of scope of the types of assets at play we'll see more on that front.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. In in addition to the scope of uh, activities that are covered and thinking about discretionary authority and other items in that vein, I think another area where uh, potentially some of the scope of what's covered underneath the rule proposal has expanded has also been in kind of the definition of a qualified custodian. And I think that's an important point, you know, maybe a good question to ask here of who who are we actually talking about? You know maybe Jenna, I'll I'll look to you. In addition to the more traditional types of qualified custodians that probably many of our listeners uh, you know certainly are familiar with, are, are there other types of entities that get pulled into this rule proposal?
1: Sure. So, the definition of qualified custodian is expanding, or I would say, becoming more precise with respect to foreign financial institutions. So, generally, most of us think of a qualified custodian as a bank for holding money or a broker dealer for holding securities of course there are some other institutions that you know fall within that scope but those are the two that we generally think of as a qualified custodian now obviously with the expanded scope of assets subject to the rule, we might see, you know, some cottage industry of custodians that can hold some wonky assets, but generally the existing definition includes certain foreign financial institutions. And that's sort of a sleepy little provision people don't focus much on. Even if you're dealing with a foreign bank, like it's, or a foreign broker dealer, you're still sort of thinking about bank broker dealer, you know, type institutions. Now that current rule provision says that a qualified custodian includes a foreign financial institution that customarily holds financial assets for its customers, provided the institution keeps advisory client assets in customer accounts segregated from its proprietary accounts. So it's really loosey-goosey. And if you look at the 2003 Amendment adopting release. It gives a little more teeth to that, and the you know adopting release goes on to say that the SEC believes that the fiduciary obligations of the advisor would require it either to have a reasonable basis for believing the foreign financial institution will provide a level of safety for client assets similar to that which would be provided by a qualified custodian in the United States, or to fully disclose to clients any material risks attendant to maintaining assets with that foreign custodian. Now, if you were to look at a sampling of ADD part twos, this isn't something that really came up much until crypto. And I do think that the new definition, whether intended or unintended, is going to you know, shine a light on some of these foreign financial institutions, wallet holders and platforms, exchanges, where um, you see digital assets and frankly other types of assets that would be subject to the rule. So you know, what I've seen in... ADVs uh, over the past few years In the um, description, in the custody description, you'll see them noting that assets might be held with these wallet providers or exchanges and a statement that they take measures to provide safekeeping for the assets held on behalf of clients and that the advisor conducts due diligence on the custodians prior to using their service. So it's a very like you know, check the box for the current definition and perhaps the adopting release because of the disclosure. Now, I am not saying that that was not an appropriate reliance on the definition. It's that we aren't sure what the SEC expects for being a satisfactory due diligence experience with those platforms, right? Right. And obviously, um, you know, the staff is probably highly skeptical of any institution that is not regulated by the SEC or an equivalent, you know, sister brother organization in another country. And so, I do think that that part of the proposal is going to get a lot of attention, particularly because the definition now. Now includes an anti-evasion provision within the definition of a foreign financial institution. And the institution cannot be operating for the purpose of evading the provisions of the custody rule. So I thought that was very intentional. And... You know, there's a, a lot in there, but again, I think getting clarity from the staff on what safekeeping measures would be sufficient or you know the basically what the basis of an you know an advisor's reasonable belief that would be sufficient. And we see this not only with the custody proposal, but obviously that you know dovetails on their outsourcing proposal. Um yeah. and obviously focusing on that diligence.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's really I'm glad that you Dug into that specific subject because I do think you see at multiple points in this rule proposal, some kind of new, uh, I'll call it, you know, obligations and, and kind of expectations of the advisor of the manager of those assets with regard to First, the custodians, and then some of the other uh, uh, kind of attestations that are in there. And I know one question that I actually was thinking would be good for for this discussion too. Maybe maybe ISA, I'll turn to you. Um, it's not just due diligence, right, on some of these custodians, but there's also a, a written agreement requirement. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of uh, that specific part of the rule, what it says, and the potential impact to you know investment managers.
2: Yeah, happy to dive in there. So, this is one of the more, uh, I guess, controversial areas of the rule, you know, the written agreement requirement, and also the requirement to receive certain written assurances on an ongoing basis from from the custodians that uh, you as the advisor deal with, or that, I guess, your clients are engaging, usually. You know, they're, they're there let's just back up though before I kind of dive into the specific um, asks I guess that the SEC is making here, and you know just kind of provide just a little bit of background as to why the SEC is even doing this or why yeah. why they're why they're really asking for this so in in their view they they've seen somewhat uneven protections for advisory clients in the you know in the agreements that they they enter into with uh, with qualified custodians to hold their advisory assets so what they're looking to accomplish here is you know implement you know a a common kind of minimum set of protections that they think are necessary for advisory clients when they engage a qualified custodian to hold their advisory assets and you know they have a number of provisions here that are going to be required um, in a written agreement between the advisor and each qualified custodian that uh, you know the advisor's clients are using. You know that's just you know going to be I think a significant operational challenge for a lot of investment advisors. Generally speaking, you know a lot of investment advisors don't select the qualified custodian that uh, their their clients use uh, their clients oftentimes have their own ability to kind of engage a qualified custodian on their own so you know there's there's going to be a process of you know just just determining the, the scope of qualified custodians that are even included here and reaching out to them to kind of get get these agreements on the books I mean which is I mean that's that's a that's a big ask, and then on top of that, you, you know, there's there's going to be certain specified terms that have to be in there under the rule. Um, you know, some of these they're not necessarily too surprising. You, you know, the the SEC wants access to books and records and wants to ensure that the accountants that are doing your surprise exam or uh, internal audit are have are, are getting the requisite access to books and records. Okay, fine. On top of that, you know, they're asking um, for the agreement to state that there's an obligation of the for the qualified custodian to send quarterly account statements. Maybe not so big of a deal, but then you know we get into some other things that you know are going to be a, a big lift here, right? So the you know what the next thing that they ask for here is. Uh, that the the qualified custodian will provide the advisor on an annual basis an internal control report that uh, you know meets certain standards as set forth the, under the rules. So, you know, for for custodians that aren't um, you know already obtaining those types of internal control reports, that's going to be a new cost for them. That I assume will end up you know being passed on to advisors and advisory clients, right? And then you know it kind of begs the question as the investment advisor when you receive these these internal control reports what are you supposed to do with them right you know you have a fiduciary duty to your clients to make sure that you have um, that you know your clients assets are being you know kept uh, in, in, a, in a safe way you're, you're receiving these internal re- control reports on an annual basis. That that implies, I think, that you have an obligation to re- review those annually right. and make sure that, the, that nothing is amiss at the qualified custodian. So there's a new compliance obligation for you right there, kind of built into this in an indirect way. And you know, finally, you know, with respect to the written agreement requirement, the SEC is implementing you know a workaround with respect to this issue relating to so-called inadvertent custody, where. You know, a lot of investment advisors over the years have run into this problem where they had no visibility into what their, you know, what their clients' agreements with the custodians were saying about the authority that the investment advisor had to access their custodial account. And you know, the SEC has taken the view over the years that you know, unless you take some action to to um, rid yourself of that authority that authority that exists in your client's agreement with the custodian is enough to give you you know custody it's constructive custody right, right? even if you right. don't use it right so you know this is they're they're asking advisors to include language in their agreements with their qualified custodians that state the agreed upon level of authority that the advisor has with respect to that custodial account to clear up any sort of you know any kind of issue that could arise as a result of language that the advisor just doesn't want, or authority that the advisor doesn't want, as a result of language in the client's agreement with the qualified custodian. So, you know, there's, you know, these are, you know, these are, you know, complicated provisions. These are going to be contracts that. You know, are going to be subject to heavy negotiation. I'm sure. You know, what after after you it? identify the, the qualified custodians that your clients are dealing with, then you're going to have to go through this process of entering into these agreements. It's it's just going to be a big lift. And you know what what honestly, you know this feels like in a way is the SEC again, ironically outsourcing its regulatory responsibility to investment advisors or you know expanding uh, the reach of its of its regulatory uh to to banks when it doesn't otherwise really have that you, you know and asking investment advisors to be the so called you know uh you know cop on the beat uh really. you know to 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 regulate these 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 uh these banks and other you know qualified custodians to make sure that you know advisory clients are getting uh certain protections and we'll see how that goes
0: but there are two you you uh you touched on two things there that that I think are particularly important I want to dig into and then I got a question for Jenna uh that, that Issa just kind of talked a little bit about scope creep so I want to I want to uh get get hear from you on that but I think the other thing you mentioned there Issa first is you know like the the actual cost of compliance here yeah right because it's not just the resources and the new obligations that are going to be imposed upon the Firms out there to conduct and document and and put into place these uh, attestations, the written, you know, attestation requirements, stuff like that. But it, the, the written agreement requirement. But in addition to that, if they're going to mandate that custodians are performing these tasks and activities internally, and they're generating certain reports that they need in order to satisfy the different elements of this new rule proposal. You know the the, the custodian is just going to charge enhanced fees to comply with that work, and then there's even additional costs. Sure. That
2: right, and on top of that, custodians that just don't want to deal with this will just get out of the market. Right. So right, you could have uh, a situation where there's just less choice right. for clients, and you know further con- consolidation in the market, and when there's more consolidation, less competition what's what's the eventual yeah. result it's going to be higher cost and and yeah. you know uh, less innovation less service so yeah i mean these are things you have to balance and i'm hopeful that the you know that the SEC will think about these issues as they work through the rulemaking process and you know the cost benefit analysis yeah. i'd also be remiss if i didn't Run through the reasonable assurances requirement under the rule, which is a separate requirement from the written agreement requirement. So, separate sure. from yeah, separate from this. As an investment advisor, you have to get certain reasonable assurances from the qualified custodians that your 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 clients are working with under this proposal. So, you know, some of these are are not necessarily you know a, a significant deal, but one of them really stands out to me, and and, and this one I think is is um, you know, really going to have an you know an impact from the perspective that I just mentioned about you know some certain some some custodians maybe saying to themselves, well, we don't want to deal with this anymore. We this, we want to get out of this market, or you know, causing consolidation or you know, just overall a, a less desirable experience for clients. And that's that's this this new requirement that the SEC is floating to require qualified custodians to indemnify. Advisory clients against the risk of the loss of their assets that are maintained with that qualified custodian in the event of that custodian's own negligence, recklessness, or willful misconduct. You know, qualified custodians deal with, you know, the biggest ones, tons of accounts, right? So they're asking essentially, you know, uh, qualified custodians to expose themselves to virtually limitless. Amounts of potential liability, you know, with with respect to um you know clients' assets and 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 provide them a you know a direct indemnification right. I mean, this is this is not something um, I, I think the qualified custodian industry is going to take lightly. And you know, again, I mean, coming back to your 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 kind of point earlier, Patrick, you know, for those qualified custodians that decide to stay in this market, you know, it's, it, they're going to have to think about. How they're going to mitigate this, the the risk associated with this, and um, how they're going to deal with the the additional potential cost associated with it, and you know we'll see we'll see how it plays out. But that's um, you know that that's a that's a significant move by the SEC here.
0: Yeah. No, it, it certainly, it certainly would would seem so. I, I do think that your point is a really good one, which is that these are in an ideal state, and when you think about things in theory, I can understand some of the uh, uh, you know positioning that's being taken. At the same time, there are these real world consequences that are going to have huge. Huge impacts on those specific entities that are actually participating in the space, and and it's not really clear how we're going to be able to, to properly accommodate the, their interests and even their ability to continue to operate in in the space underneath the new rule proposal. And so that that does dovetail, I think, a little bit into the other item that you mentioned, Issa and and Jenna. I'd love to turn it back to you. You know, it, it does seem like. With this new rule proposal, the SEC is trying to both in in some aspects expand its jurisdiction over certain entities. And then in other aspects, it kind of is is outsourcing part of the kind of regulatory supervision or responsibilities onto advisors. I guess just kind of, you know, generally, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that scope creep and and where you think it it comes into the new rule proposal.
1: Sure. So obviously the sec does not regulate banks and a lot of qualified custodians are in fact banks the sec does have jurisdiction over broker dealers which is the other most popular category of that qualified custodian definition and so It it seems like, well, first off, why is it you are trying to govern the business practices and services of a non-registrant? Or if you wanted to govern the business practices of a registrant, go through that rulemaking practice as it relates to broker-dealers. So, lots of questions there, but I think we're starting to see some themes emerge with this administration and their rulemaking generally. So, you know, I I think most people think of the Advisors Act as like an anti-fraud statute that I remember um, a long time ago, one of the partners I worked with used to call it the disclosure statute. I guess you could say that about all of the Securities Act, but particularly you know, we we think of the rules as requiring disclosure, prohibiting fraudulent practices, maybe restrict you know certain restrictions, but when it comes down to that pers um, prescriptive approach saying you can't do things, particularly as it relates to privately negotiated contracts with businesses that are not within the SEC's jurisdiction, it's it's definitely starting to feel like a new trend. Particularly, we've seen the uh, requirements as to contracts with service providers and the outsourcing rules. I mean, they go so far as to say that you have to have these you know, reasonable assurances from the service provider that they're going to coordinate with an advisor to ensure compliance with the federal securities laws and also have a... Uh, a process for the orderly termination of a service, and so obviously that would have to be spelled out in the contract itself. So even in the outsourcing rule, we see the concept of reasonable assurances and trying to kind of you know dictate the terms. It's a pretty strong word, dictate the terms. But you know it's not something that we have seen historically where the SEC is saying what the contract needs to say. Now this is you know, not new just as it relates to the custody rule and the outsourcing rule, but we have seen the SEC also trying to um, get involved. I think is a nice way to put it in privately negotiated contracts with advisory clients. I mean, it's actually quite shocking. The Advisors Act requirements for an advisory agreement—it's pretty thin stuff, right? It's like right. A, couple of, a couple of things you got to do, like you know the non-assignment clause and the hedge clause, and you know the performance fee, you know. Prohibition, unless they're a qualified client, that's like pretty much it, right? It's pretty thin. But now we're starting to see the SEC take much more interest in the substance of contracts with clients as well as service providers and the private funds rule. Obviously, um, you know, the industry is, you know, very interested in the SEC focusing on whether or not you can have indemnification or exculpation indemnification for gross negligence in private fund LPAs, you're kind of seeing similar themes of the SEC focusing on strict negligence, simple negligence I should say, in other contracts including the outsourced service provider um, proposal. You see uh, the concepts of whether or not a service provider is engaging in negligence. And now with the custody uh, proposal, you see the SEC interested in making sure the custodian is going to be held liable to a client, not the advisor, but directly to the client for its negligence. So I really do think we're seeing a pivot in the scope of prescriptive rules or governing rules that the SEC is putting down in this space that we haven't really seen so much in the past.
0: Yeah. No, I'm, um, um th- thank you for sharing that insight. And, um, I think it's really, really important for people to kind of get a, a better sense of that, a better understanding of that. You know, I, I'd love to dig into some of the changes around the, you know, 2042 and the books and records rule as a regard in, in regards to this proposal. But honestly, we've, we're, we've, we've dug in deep in a lot of other areas. And so I'll let, I'll let our listeners, I mean, I would, I would, you know, commend to you to take a look at that as well. I think the last thing I want to follow up on, and this really builds on the points that both uh, you, Jenna, and you, Issa, have 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 each made throughout the conversation today, which is, you know, what just kind of broadly speaking, uh, you know, what what does this rule proposal? Maybe some some closing thoughts, right, on what this rule proposal tells us about. The focus of the SEC in this area, and and kind of what what you know what are you thinking is their positioning from a, a policy perspective? Maybe, maybe Jenna will start with you, and then Issa will
1: will let you finish up. So. Oh, gosh, what is the SEC thinking? I'm not sure I can
0: necessarily
1: speculate. It's
0: a tough ask. And maybe something that, yeah, right.
1: But um, a question I've heard a lot lately, I think that, look, it's really um, fun for a a change to be playing Monday morning quarterback when their proposals come out. Like, you know, we get to sit here and like, be like, oh, but this is the, you know, just pick it apart. Right, But the truth is that there are compelling policy reasons behind this. And at the end of the day, I do believe that a lot of the proposals are trying to prevent loss for investors i mean that is really the mission and making sure that people aren't stealing money or stealing assets and there is good reason for the staff to be concerned about that and you know, not you know, just in um, the crypto world where you know there's tons of scams and things disappear. I just learned about rug pulling last night. You know, late to the game on that. But you know, there's plenty um, of scams out there. They're not just in the crypto space. I do think focusing on privately offered securities and what it means to safeguard. Like there's there are um, some unknowns under the existing framework that would be helpful. So uh, in the spirit of trying to protect uh, clients, uh, investors against loss, I can definitely get behind that mission. And I think as I I always uh, feel in the proposal stage, making sure that we as the profession, professionals in the space, understand the requirements, making sure we flush out ambiguities, and also getting help from the staff to bring the service providers to the table so we don't eliminate good choices for, you know, providing those ancillary services that support the
2: industry is critical.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Jenna. Issa?
2: Well, you know, I think, you know, Jenna kind of alluded to this earlier, but I think this is, you know, just a a part of a pattern, right? You know, the SEC clearly, you know, wants advisors to take some sort of active role in helping it regulate other industries. And, you know, the outsourcing rule, you know, had, had those themes, and this is very much of a piece with that. And, You know the the, this written agreement requirement, the assurances that you have to obtain from your qualified custodians. I think it's just taking that that trend to the next level. So, you know, if if we can kind of you know think about just at a high level, you know, what the SEC is up to here, and look at this from a from a bird's eye view, it seems like you know the SEC is interested in flexing its regulatory muscle. And uh, expanding in, into areas that it's historically has not necessarily had the authority to do, but has gotten creative about it and is is doing that by way of the relationships that their regulatory and uh, regulated entities have with um, with those industries. So you know we'll see. Uh, how you know how that plays out and uh, how how well all of that is executed by by the advisory industry but you know they're asking for a lot they' you know they're they're asking for you know especially for smaller firms for firms that don't have you know the types of uh, you know bodies and resources of uh, you know more uh, you know well resourced shops to just take on more and more responsibility um and to play that, you know, that role of the cop on the beat when they've already got so much on their hands. Right. No, I think
0: the I think both of you have shared some really excellent perspective there. I, I agree with your comments. And again, I'll I'll just add that I think The ultimate costs here, you know, and and I always pay attention to those economic analyses that come out with the rule proposals and stuff like that. And I I just think in this case, there's so much more underlying there when we're when the participants that are going to be charged with actually completing these tasks are going to try to mandate these requirements on custodians and custodians are just going to say no, I mean, like, they're just they're not going to agree. And so that puts the advisor. That's put the that puts the investment manager in a really difficult position because they want to get good service for their clients, but they also need to make sure that they're meeting uh, the potential, again, potential requirements under the rules. So Jenna, ISA, Uh, Thank you both so, so much for providing uh, just incredible insights and analysis into this new custody rule proposal. Um, I I wouldn't be doing my my job if I didn't get you out of here with at least one lighter, maybe a bit more fun question with all of the (laughs) regulatory rule proposals circling us. So very quickly, I would love to hear what both of you are most looking forward to as we uh, uh, enter into the spring uh, season here. Maybe Isa, we'll we'll start with you.
2: (sighs) Well, as a dad to two young kids, who are five and three, we've been through the ringer this winter with uh, all kinds of illnesses. So I am looking forward to spring and summertime where there are fewer illnesses circulating out there and we're just not sick all the time, so that's what I'm looking forward to. That doesn't sound too fun, I guess, but you know, I think it, the, the the last few years have taught us that um, you know health is paramount, and you shouldn't necessarily take it for granted. So we're looking forward to health. I I,
0: I, I see you, Isa. Yeah, I got, I got, <laughs> I got, I got, I got, I got three girls, five, five two, and almost one, and uh, I, I feel you. I feel you, Miss Garber. How about you?
1: Well, I'm on the other end of the spectrum. I am looking forward to creating as many memories as I can. I'm going to cry. Memories as I can as I literally cling onto my daughter graduating this spring and getting ready to go off to college. So, you know, it's a little bittersweet for me. I know we're going to have a fantastic time together in the coming months. But I know there are a lot of people out there listening who are probably very concerned about what's going to happen to me in the fall. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm trying to keep it together, folks. I, I am. So, but it's, I know it's going to be a blast this summer for sure.
0: Wonderful. Wonderful answers from you both, and uh, good good luck with all of it. And uh, I hope uh, I hope you get to experience all of the positivity that's that, that spring and new life and everything brings brings with it. So, thank you both so so much for coming on the podcast. I Really really appreciate uh, you guys sharing your invaluable insights, and you know, looking forward to having you both here back on the show at some point down the road.
1: Thank you, Patrick. Thanks Except for having for... us, Patrick. <laughs> The final part
0: of today's show features another segment of History Has Your Back. As a quick reminder for some of our new listeners, this segment represents the part of the podcast where we go back in time to help us better understand the present and help define where we're headed in the future. In today's History Has Your Back, and in honor of March as Women's History Month, we look at the legend of the Greek physician, Agnetus. In ancient Greece, women were forbidden to study medicine until, that is, someone broke the law. Born in Athens in the 4th century BCE, Agnetus supposedly cut her hair and entered Alexandria Medical School dressed as a man where she studied under the famous Greek physician Herophilus. While walking the streets of Athens after completing her medical education, she heard the cries of a woman in labor. Having trained as a physician, Agnetus tried to assist women in labor who were ashamed of or blatantly refused to consult male practitioners. However, the woman did not want Agnes to touch her, although she was in severe pain because she thought Agnes was a man. Agnes proved that she was a, ru- a woman by removing her clothes without anyone seeing and helped the woman deliver her baby. The story would soon spread among the women and all the women who were sick began to go to Agnes. The male doctors grew envious and accused Agnes, whom they thought was male, of seducing female patients. At her trial, Agnes stood before the court and proved that she was a woman, but this time she was sentenced to death for studying medicine and practicing medicine as a woman. Women revolted at the sentence, especially the wives of the judges who had given the death penalty. Some said that that if Agnes was killed, they would go to their deaths with her. Unable to withstand the pressures of their wives and other women, the judges lifted Agnes' sentence, and from then on, women were allowed to practice medicine, provided that they only looked after other women. Thus, Agnes made her mark in history as the first Greek female doctor, physician, and gynecologist. While there still exists some controversy over the historical figure of Agnetus, there is no controversy that women all over the world today continue to break down barriers across industry and trade and in the investment management space and compliance profession. I am incredibly fortunate to work alongside many women who continue to inspire me and who continue to make their mark, as Agnetus did, to help improve their profession and positively impact The lives of those around them. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfee and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guests, Jenna Garver and Issa Hanna, for sharing their fantastic insights into the new custody rule proposal. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance and Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Or go to ComplianceInContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more.